Welcome back into Sports Call, Tiger 95.9 FM. And on the Tiger Communications app, J.J. Jackson and Ryan Lavoie here with you live from Radio Row at SEC Media Days. And, man, we're thrilled to now be chatting with John McDade, the SEC Coordinator of Officials. John, how are you? I'm doing fine, J.J. How are you? I'm Ryan? very well. Very well. Thanks for asking. Doing well as well. And, and John, we got up early with you, as we said, uh, and uh, we've seen your presentation last year and this year. And uh, first and foremost, just for the listener to kind of recap some of what you talked about before we get into rule, rule change, uh, it seemed like the SEC was on par with the national average in a lot of uh, things as far as pace of play and penalties thrown and that sort of thing. So just talk about what you liked uh, about your group of officials this past year. Yeah, I, I, I like the consistency we're bringing to, to a lot of it. There's still some areas that we need to, to, to be that much better. And, of course, we want to improve year, year over year. You know, we, we don't want to be just as good as we were last year. We want to be that much better. But um, now going – just finished my third off season um, in this role, going into the third season, and familiarity has been, has been established between myself and, and, and the officiating roster, the officiating roster to myself, what we're, what we're all about, what we're looking for, the culture we want, et cetera, et cetera. So things are going fairly well. And you're right, the, some of the metrics I brought using the NCAA statistics for the football – Bull subdivision, um, we're like we're like right in the middle, um, you know, on, on the averages or, or meeting the what the averages are for things like game time, a number of plays per game, scoring, fouls thrown, targetings per game, replay stops per game, um, and average review time for each replay review. And, and so, along with that, I mean, I know that uh, safety is always an issue that you worry about in pace of play, and that's one of the reasons a, a year or two ago the overtime rule changed. Uh, what other measures, and I guess we have a rule change to talk about as well along these lines, uh, but, but what interests you most about player safety right now? Um, you know, it, it, I guess what interests me the most is that we're very mindful of it, right? It is, um, you know, the rule book is basically set up in, um, in, in basically three or four different ways. Uh, one of them is just the balance of the game. It establishes the rules on how the offense and defense compete against each other and make sure there's equity between the two of them, right? But then there's also um, personal fouls, uh, which are all safety-related. Um, there's 17 different personal fouls in Rule 9, and they're all in there for, for safety reasons. And then the, the third area is, is just beha behavior in the game, uh, things related to unsportsmanlike conduct. Those are basically all the fouls can be put usually in one of those three buckets. So for personal fouls, um, you know, we, we have to be right. You know, we have. It's a 15-yard penalty. It's an automatic first down. If it's, it's by the defense, we, we have to be right. But it, it, it's necessary, and it's, it's good for the game that we're mindful of making sure that what we define as personal fouls is in line with doing the best we possibly can to keep the player out of harm's way. We talk about rule changes going into this 2022 season. Uh, one of the ones that you brought to light this morning here at SEC Media Days uh, was blocking below the waist. Tell, this is a listening audience. You had the PowerPoint presentation a little bit earlier today for us. Now we've got to describe that on radio. So, J.J., you're saying this, I could wave my hands all over <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> It's not going to do anything for our audience? Yeah, yeah uh, blocking below the waist, there is a rule change this year. It's about as significant of a rule change as we've seen in three or four years when it comes to the actual playing of the sure. game, how it's coached, how it's played. Simply put, you can no longer legally block below the waist outside of the tackle box. So if you think of different scenarios of the game, um, uh, to your lineman going to the second level trying to block a linebacker has to be at the waist or above. We have a stretch play, sweep play, a screen pass that's outside of the tackle box. Any blocks outside the tackle box need to be at the waist or higher. 
And then on the defensive side of the ball, when we have those sweep plays and screen plays, um, we have a pulling lineman. Uh, a lot of times the first defender uh, will come in and cut that lineman to take that lead block out. That, that, that block now needs to be at the waist or higher. What is the protocol that goes into, okay, a rule change takes place. Now we've got to communicate the rule change to the officials and also tell them how to communicate to fans in the stadium and the television audience what exactly that penalty was. Like, here we are talking the rule change of blocking and that sort of thing. The TV viewer, how do you let them know that this flag or this penalty was just created? Well, it starts with the, the rules committee meeting is in, in winter. Um, uh, this week was this year was in I believe the first week of March, and they're factoring if it's if it's a safety related if right. it's a personal foul they're bringing in uh, medical data, um, they're bringing in uh, data from teams on on injury rates and whatnot. I know that the um, the NCAA worked with the NFL for injury data related to blocking below the waist because the NFL made a, a rule change prior to their 21 season, and so they had a season's worth of data to bring in about how their rule change. Um, uh, affected for the better. It was a positive change when it came to injuries. They're also looking at competitive balance, going back to what I was talking about earlier. If we make this rule change, what kind of balance? Do we have, what does it do to the competitive balance between the offense and defense? And then also to the, um, you know, I'll call it the good of the game. I mean, <laughs> how does it affect the product that we observe, you know, as fans of the game? You know, does it, does it still meet the spirit of the game and keep the moment, you know, flow and, and, and whatnot? Once they... Uh, they convince themselves it is good for the game. Um, they make a proposal, and it goes to the playing rules uh, oversight panel, um, who vote on whether to adopt it or not. And um, at that point in time, we get to the second part of your question: is how, how do we educate? Um, I created a voiceover tape of all the new playing rule changes for our head coaches and for our officials back in April. Uh -huh. It was about 47 minutes long, and it was for the purposes of for our officials understanding how we're going to interpret these new rules, the frameworks of judgment we're going to use to, to apply the rules, and then have the coaches hear what I'm saying to my officials so they understand how we're officiating the game. And then here we are in Atlanta using media days to talk to individuals like yourselves um, and your audience yeah. to understand our ideas, the rule changes, um, um, and make, doing our best to socialize it for people to understand. And I suspect um, in the first few Weeks of the season, you're watching a television broadcast for games. You're going to see graphics up there talking about the new block and below, the, the, you know, the, the, the way the waste rules. Just to remind people of that we do have a rule change. And, and obviously, John, when we look at um, what we saw this morning in, in the presentation, there's one penalty on people's minds pretty constantly. There's one penalty singled out in the PowerPoint on targeting um, that we see it now about one in every five games or so. Uh, in the FBS or in, in NCAA football. And we do have kind of a procedural change here with uh, talk to our audience about what will happen now if there is a second half uh, targeting penalty called. Yeah. You know, we, I think the, ex I'll use the word acceptance. The acceptance of targeting today is in a pretty good place save one aspect of it and that aspect of is if it's a second half targeting we're going to have a carryover disqualification for the first half of, <clears throat> of that player excuse me <clears throat> um what we've added is if the targeting if, in post game a video shows that the targeting that was uh, called and upheld in in replay is clearly wrong that there is a post-game appeal process to remove that disqualification. So it only addresses that aspect of the penalty. 
and that is the carryover first half disqualification for for that player. Has that been something that uh, you know? I don't know how much you listen to external noise, like like what the fans have to say, but like, is that something that? has weighed a little bit heavier because that is one of the newer rules in college football. It's just the concept of targeting. It was not around, uh, say, a decade plus ago. Um, has that been something that you've kind of looked at more particular at, trying to tweak? And, and as you said, you, you feel it's in a good place now. But, like, I, I just wonder, like, how much kind of external noise even factors in at all to, to taking a closer look at something. I, you know, this is where I'll say and I'll remind that uh, my job is to apply the rules, not to make the rules. Sure. Right. And um, – what hasn't happened over the last two, three, five years is changed the definition of what targeting is or the, the, the frameworks of judgments we're using to evaluate the targeting when it, when it goes into replay. It's, it's all of that, 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 that public um, uh, fixation is on the penalty, right? And in particular, the disqualification. There's not many penalties in the, in the rule book that carry a disqualification and, and, and a disqualification that potentially go over to the second half, uh, the first half of the next game. That's not my pay grade to decide whether that penalty is fits. But I will say um, penalties are there for deterrence, right? And uh, of all the things that we have for safety issues, targeting, the use of the helmet, the use of the crown on the helmet, and how it can be associated with putting a, a player into a position of getting catastrophic area, uh, injury, it stands to reason we want to have our largest deterrence on something like that. We saw last year at SEC Media Days getting to hear from you take the podium for the first time and talking about rule changes uh, in college football, the big one being that overtime rule change that after the first two overtimes, here we are, we're going to the two-point conversions. How was that received this year from what you're hearing? In, in, our, in our conference, it was received well. It really didn't play out um, in uh, like the game that happened in the yeah. Big Ten, right? Um, Obviously, the, the feedback on the Big Ten game was, was a little bit uh, different. Again, another playing rule change. Not, they, they didn't make that change because they thought that this overtime format was going to be better, right? It was going to create more interest right. in the game. It created for safety reasons. And um, so while there was a lot of talk about the nine overtime game and the fact we went to nine overtimes and we have uh, uh, seven of those overtime periods just going, you know, starting at two-point conversions, um, the, the, the fact remains, it, it cuts down on the overall number of plays that the player's going through, and therefore it's a safer game because of it. So I don't see I, – I don't know that there was much discussion. Um, I wasn't in the room during the rules committee meeting, but I don't know that there's been much, there was much discussion about maybe tweaking it. Uh, I think people are still pretty – you know, they want to wait at least two or three years uh, uh, sample size before they decide whether or not they need to tweak it. Are we seeing more people wanting to be officials in 2022 compared to the rest of your career? Like, what is the state of officiating, uh, really at all levels, I guess? Yeah. So I'll answer that in two ways. At my level, so this offseason, I had to hire some new officials for the SEC as well as for the Sun Belt and, and the Southern Conference. And at my level, the, the demand, you know, the, the supply for my demand, it still appears to be there. That being said, um, I do keep in touch with what's going on at the high school, at the grassroots level, both youth, youth football and at high school level. They're having issues. Um, there's a lot of states now that are asking their teams to play, uh, to schedule at least one of their, their contests on uh, something other than Friday night because that's the only way they're going to have enough officials to go around to, to, you know, to, to handle all of their games. Uh, in other sports other than football, 
um, I've seen instances where contests have been canceled, not 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 um, you know delayed or rescheduled, but but canceled because of a lack of officials. So it is a very real problem. It's not manifesting itself on on the officiating that goes on in Southeast Conference football at this point in time, but. Um, it, it will eventually have, if, if the trend continues, it will eventually have a trip, trickle up uh, sure. uh, effect. So for people at that grassroots level that could be in our listening audience that are like, hey, I'm looking for uh, something to do potentially on Friday nights. They're sitting on the fence, John. They don't know whether or not they want to do this. What's the sales pitch? Why get into something like officiating? I'll say this. You know, there's the obvious things. It gives you a chance to stay close to the game. And when I, when I say close to the game, really, really close to the game. So if you're an ex-player and you're missing it, uh, you decided not to go into coaching. Um, it is a terrific way to stay close to the game. You make some money, right? Yeah. It's also a great so- social club. Um, you know, it's. I, I remember my first three or four years of fishing. I started in San Diego. Uh, I was doing youth in high school for the first three or four years. It, you know, the, the, the social aspect of it was just fabulous. But I'll throw this out that I don't think is obvious to people, and this would be my sales pitch. It's a way to compete. If you're a former athlete, you know, and, and – you're a basketball player, maybe you're playing in a men's league or, or you know, whatnot, and I get that. You're still competing, but officiating is a way to compete. <clears throat> it's a way to go out, do something, get evaluated for, for a 60-minute game if, it, if it's a college level, a, uh, trying to do the math, a 40- or 48-minute game um, at, at the high school level, get feedback, and then get a chance to go out and improve yourself just a week later. Um, we all compete in our, in our jobs, right? Somehow, some way we compete, but it doesn't – it's, it's not a close resemblance to the competition we have as athletes. I have found that officiating is the closest competition to me being an athlete of anything I've done in my post-athletic career. Well, last week, it's interesting. We saw at the NBA Summer League level, Richard Jefferson, who played in the league for so many years, now the broadcast booth, officiated for a quarter and after the fact was like, man, that's a whole lot harder than I expected it to be and uh, kind of made a couple of mistakes. You think back on some of the first games that you officiated or tell me the, tell me the story for the first time that uh, you were an official in some capacity. I remember my very first game. It was a Pop Warner football game in, in uh, San Diego, California. It was probably uh, second and third graders that were out on the field. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a, a, a three-person crew, um, a referee and two guys on the line of scrimmage. And, um, I, it, you know, it was, it, it was just – it was everything I thought it was going to be. Sure. Um, but I, I, for some reason, I, and I think it's because I had some outstanding individuals that were training me and, and acting as mentors, I didn't worry about messing up. Um, one of the pieces of advice I got very early in my career was don't worry about making a mistake. If you can eliminate making the same mistake twice, you're going to be a good official in four or five years. And I, I took that to heart. And so I just I, – I just – I don't know. It, it – it was a natural fit for me. I know I recognize it's not a natural fit for everyone, but I do ask people if you hadn't considered that officiating is a way to compete, give that some thought because I I really identified with that when I was on the field. I enjoyed competing week in, week in and week out. So SEC Media Days is here, football season right around the corner for you and your role before football season gets here. Like, what are the final boxes that you need to check off before we feel good in your position as the coordinator officials to get the season going? Yeah, so, J.J., we have our um, preseason officiating clinic. It starts next Thursday in Birmingham. We'll have all our officials in person. And uh, having both – we'll have a physical fitness test out on a a field on Friday morning. What does that involve? Uh, It's now a – there's two aspects of it. Um, One is stamina. One is agility. The stamina is a bunch of wind sprints, 
uh, three sets of, of, of wind sprints. The agility is some cone work. How about that? And then there's a lot of, of, of uh, classroom work that is very, very video intensive. Thanks for the time today, John. This has been a whole lot of fun. Absolutely. J.J. Ryan, I enjoyed it. That's John McDade, the SEC Coordinator of Officials, joining us.